Well, I have been sitting back there trying to think about how to transition from all of that to this, and uh, I guess that was it. <laughs> I guess sometimes it's better not to say anything, but why don't one more time at all of our campuses, you put your hands together and show our appreciation to God for what He's allowed us to see. All of our campuses, West Club and Cole Mill, and you, you guys that are joining us right now in the Bay came together, our Hispanic campus as well, to join together and uh, be able to give what is going to be necessary for us to take some steps coming up here in the future, some very necessary steps to deal with um, the questions we have of, of, of growing and what is next. And so I just want to thank you for your generosity and for what that enables us to do. This is an exciting chapter in our church, and uh, I really feel like I can say this is only the beginning of what is going on. So if you would, why don't you join me and let me voice a prayer of uh, appreciation to God on your behalf. So if you would, why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Father, your goodness to us is something that really feels like it'd be difficult for me to put into words that would be appropriate. Lord, just the gratefulness that we feel in our hearts, not only for not only for the way that you gave your life to see us forgiven of our sins and to give us a home in heaven, but how, Lord, you continue to remind us of your goodness and how much you care about our city and our world and our families by the way that you are moving in this church, not for our sake, Lord, but for the glory of your namesake. God, we really are, Ephesians 3.20, experiencing anything experiencing things that are so exceedingly abundantly above anything we could even ask or think or hope to imagine. God, we have seen, as David said, your goodness in the land of the living. And so, Father, together as a congregation, we tell you thank you. Thank you for the way that you have blessed us. Thank you for the gift of knowing you and calling you Father. And then the gift of seeing you surge in our congregation and move in us to reach our neighbors and our friends and our family and our sons and our daughters, and then from here to go throughout all the world planting churches and preaching the gospel. God, help us in these next few moments as we again stare into the mirror of your word and see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ contained within it. We ask for that help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tuesday, June 6, 1944. 6.30 a.m., about five, a little over 5,000 ships carrying 175,000 Allied troops approached the southern beaches in France for the largest invasion in modern history, what we now refer to as D-Day. Some of the men who survived the invasion said that they remember the steady stream of messages and exhortations being broadcast over the ship intercoms in those final few minutes as that fleet of 5,000 ships approached the French beaches. Fight to get your troops ashore. Fight to save your ships. And if you've got any strength left, fight to save yourselves. Another went, we shall die on the sands of France, but we will never turn back. Another one, this is it. Pick it up. Put it on. You've got a one-way ticket, and this is the end of the line. The two messages that the survivors most remembered was the clear call that rang out on all of the ships at about 6.20, away all boats, and our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Over 12,000 Americans died that morning in a span of about 15 minutes. As the boats reached the shores, the disembarking soldiers literally had to crawl over the bodies of other soldiers to be able to make it onto the beaches. That is an image that I realize that is not pleasant. It is sobering. It makes you grateful. But I share it because the men that approached the beaches of Normandy that day had no delusions about what they were going into. They did not think that they were going to the beach for a vacation. They understood exactly what they were walking into. They knew that there was a vicious enemy who wanted to destroy them, and they knew that many of them would die. The book of Ephesians pulls back the curtain on the mysteries of life and shows you and I that we are in the midst of a battle that is no less stringent with an enemy that is no less fierce. And quite honestly, the tragedy is, uh, tragedy is that many of us have no idea that we're even in a battle. We approach life as if it were a vacation and not a war. We live life as if we were on a playground and not on a battleground. But it's not. It's not. And you can wish all day long that it was. I do sometimes. I wish that life were a vacation. I wish that life were rest. I wish it was a playground. But that doesn't change the fact one bit that this is a battle. And unless you wake up to that fact, you are going to waste your life. And even worse, you and those you love might be casualties. How stupid to show up at Normandy on D-Day with a beach towel and a ducky. Right? But that's how many of us are showing up for a battle no less intense. For those of you that are familiar with the book of Ephesians, you may be used to thinking of Ephesians 6 as the passage on spiritual warfare, and it is. But the theme of battle pervades, really, all of Ephesians. And I want to show you that today from Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to take it out and open it. To Ephesians 5, we're going to begin about halfway through the chapter where we left off last week. Ephesians 5, today... This morning, I am going to show you why many, 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 tragically many people, honestly, don't make it as Christians. Matthew 7, Jesus speaking to a group of religious people, and he made a statement that if you grew up in church, you're familiar with this statement. He said, broad is the gate, and easy is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are who go in that way. But narrow is the gate. And difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are only a few who find it. Broad is the gate. Easy is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate. Difficult is the path that leads to life. And only few find it. I guess what's really sobering to me is when you consider the fact that he gave that statement not to a mass audience of people that represented all the Gentile nations. He gave that statement to a group of religious people. And he's saying that even in religious circles, broad and easy is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are who start down that path that they end up on the path of destruction and only few actually enter into the path of life. Jesus told another parable where he basically said the same thing. He told the story about a sower who went out to sow some seed in the the soil. And he says that some seed fell on soil that that when it hit the soil, it it sprang up quickly. It had spiritual fruit. There was an immediate response. People were sincere. They wanted to follow God. He said, but because the sun came out, it withered up these plants that had sprung up so promisingly at the beginning and dried them up because they had no root. 
It said others were choked out by the cares of this world, by the weeds of temptation and the weeds of materialism because they didn't have roots that go deep enough to give them the ability to withstand the other weeds and the, and the sun that was shining on them. He's saying the same thing. He's saying that there are a lot of people who begin with God. There are a lot of people who just don't make it. Just don't make it because they've never got the concepts that I'm going to talk to you about this morning. I hope to warn some of you today. I really do. I know this is kind of like, you're like, I wish you start out funny. Yeah, okay. I can't. I'm hoping to warn some of you today, and in a roundabout way, I'm actually hoping to comfort some of you. Because some of you have wondered why this Christian life is so hard for you. I know, I've told you in the last few weeks, you're like, I just became a Christian here a couple months ago, and I feel like it's supposed to be easier than this. I mean, me, I'm not cut out for this kind of life. I mean, I look around at people at church, and they're always... You know, walking around with their Bibles with the sheep on the front, and they get a little gleam in their teeth when they smile, and I just don't, it's not me. I'm struggling, it's difficult, I don't know if I'm cut out for this, I think something might be wrong with me. Yes, something is wrong with you, but something's wrong with all of us, and that's the point. There is something wrong with all of us, and that's why this is so unnatural for many of us. I'm going to show you that today, and I hope in a roundabout way, kind of ironically, it comforts you to show you that you're not unnormal however you say that word you're not you're not weird you're not weird this is something that all of us deal with because of the world that we live in and i'm going to show you why that is all right ephesians chapter 5 context of ephesians 5 is that the world we live in is not a friendly one for growing spiritually there's several different metaphors at work in ephesians 5 verse 8 verse 8 the world is a dark place verse 14 the world is a grave verse 16 the age that we live in the days we live in are evil into that world, Paul gives a number of commands that tell us to fight against the current, to struggle, to do things that feel almost unnatural for us. And the point is, if you coast, you are going to drown. If you coast, you're going to drown. Here's what I mean. Verse 8, in the midst of a dark world, he says, walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern it. I almost get the image here of trying to read in the dark. You ever do that? You ever try to read in the dark and you got to get the book right up close to your face and see if you can make out what the words are? You got to concentrate on it. Right? Sometimes when we go to bed, my wife and I, um, I, I like to read after, you know, that's the last thing I do before I go to bed. And, and it really annoys my wife when I turn the bedside light on because she can't sleep. So, being the great husband that I am, I went out and bought one of those little, like, um, cave headman lamps, like the, the lamps that go right here, where's this big, like, flashlight that's shining out. And the thing is, when you're using that to read, you've you got to focus right on where you want to look at because you can't see anywhere else in the room except where that light is shining. What's really awesome is when she says something to me, and I turn to look at her, I'm just like, you know, right in her, right in her face. But the point is, you've got to focus. You've got to focus on, on what you're looking at because only what you're staring at intently are you going to be able to see. That's the image that I, I get from this. Walk as children of light in the midst of darkness and try to discern. Try to discern. The other image I get here is, or maybe a memory, of when I was in calculus class. You know, in calculus class, you're watching the teacher go through this series of steps. And you guys, if you remember this, those of you that were in calculus, you just remember like, you're watching this thing. And if you doze for one second, I mean, if you get distracted by a bird out the window, you turn back to that thing and you're like, what just happened? What do we have we're here to there? And there's all these squiggly lines and numbers and these energy. I don't know what's happening. You've got to focus intently on it because the natural current of your brain is not going toward calculus. The natural current of your brain is going toward moron land, right? 
And if you want to be able to master these concepts, you've got to focus intently. That's what he's saying here. Focus and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord because it's not a natural occurrence. Verse 14, jump down there. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is a great one. You know how hard it is to get up from a good sleep? Can, can we all just quit being like really you know, responsible and spiritual and just admit, I don't know if you're like this, maybe, you know, I never feel like getting up. I always feel like, man, five more minutes would change my life right now. I never come closer to bursting into the gift of tongues than when I recall after waking up that glorious blessed invention called the snooze button, right? And you're like, oh, I don't need to go to the gym today, snooze, right? I can take another day off work, snooze. Someone fires me, I can always find somewhere else to work, snooze. I mean, it's, you just get this image of, 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 of it's difficult to wake up. And that's what he's saying. He's like, wake up. That's not easy because the world's asleep. Get up. Notice verse 15. Look carefully, or in Greek, it's actually diligently. Strive on how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 16, go back there. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. In other words, the tempo and the rhythms of this world are not in line with God's purposes. The world has different values and different priorities, and if the rhythms of your life are set by the world, you're going to completely waste your life. The point of all these, all these different metaphors, all these different commands is one thing. Christian life is struggle. And if we are going to make it, we have to declare absolute war on the gravitational pull of the world. A world which is sleeping, a world which is in the dark, and a world that is in the grave. Remember in Ephesians 2.4, if you were here several weeks ago when we studied chapter 2, Paul talked about the course of this world. That course is completely anti-God. That course prioritizes the lust of the flesh, which means it prioritizes the fulfilling of sensual desires above obeying the will of God. you got to get this, you got to find it, you got to make yourself happy. If it feels good, this is what you should probably be doing. It prioritizes the lust of the flesh. It prioritizes the lust of the eyes, which is coveting what other people have, wishing that you had their job or lived in their house or drove those kind of cars. It prioritizes the acquisition of stuff. Thirdly, it prioritizes the pride of life, which is exalting self above God, being focused on yourself, thinking that you are the point, wanting to make your glory and your purposes the point. The world that we live in, the course of this world, the music of this world is that, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But not only that, our own flesh is tuned to that music. Paul has taught us in Ephesians that our sinful flesh gravitates toward the anti-God course of this world like a moth to a flame. And if you don't realize that, then you are in deep trouble. That's the way your heart goes. We are like a car that is severely out of alignment. You ever had that happen? You run over a pothole, you're driving through a parking lot, you don't see that little cinder block thing there in the middle, and you bam, hit right over it, and so the next time you drive your car, you know, you take your hands off the wheel and it just veers left as fast as you can get it into a ditch. Anybody had that happen or am I just talking about my wife? Okay. <laughs> or me. Okay. Um, you're like a car severely out of alignment. So the moment you take your hands off of the wheel, it veers into lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so if we're going to make it, you've got to declare war. And that means if you're not fighting actively, 
you're losing. John Owen, the, the famous Puritan, said it this way, we are either actively killing sin or it is killing us. That means at every point, one of two things is happening. At every point, you are either actively striving to grow in godliness or you are having the sinful tendencies of your heart and the world around you kill you. At every point, that is happening. Going through this this week has made me realize how unaware most of us, including me, are to that. I was just going, in this message, going back through, looking at how this past week, how I have flirted with different sins, how I have flirted and entertained different desires. And inside, there's this internal monologue saying to me, that's not that bad. It's not really hurting anybody. You're not actually going to do that. So this, you know, kind of kind of fantasizing about this pride right here, kind of letting this coveting thing go in there, indulging a little bit in the lust of the flesh, that's not that bad because it's not really hurting anybody, not realizing that this is a war where at every point sin is killing me, and unless I am striving to grow in godliness, and unless I'm striving to grow in the gospel, it is killing me and overtaking me. And again, the tragedy is most of us have no idea that this is going on. So how do we engage in warfare? That's the question. How do we engage in this type of warfare? I count at least six different commands in these verses that we read. And a couple more that we're going to read after this at the end of chapter 5. Six different commands. So if you've got a pen, I would encourage you to take it out. and need to circle these in your Bible or write these down, okay? Number one, Paul says you ought to look carefully on how you walk. Look carefully on how you walk. That's verse 15. Try to discern what God wants. Strive to understand his will because it won't come naturally. Y'all, when I first became a Christian, I thought that escaping sin was more like a decision that you made one time for all time. I thought, you know, okay, so you got two choices here. You can follow your, the sinful ways or you can follow Jesus. And as long as you choose not to follow the sinful ways, I'm not going to go to where they, you know, get drunk, get plastered. I'm not going to go where they, you know, everybody's sleeping with everybody else. I'm going to be a Jesus guy. And so I'm going to put on the Jesus t-shirt, wear the Jesus bracelet, listen to Jesus music, right? I'm going to go on the Jesus mission trips. I'm going to do Jesus stuff. That's what we do. That's what Christians do. We do Jesus stuff. And so I got all involved in, in Jesus things and filled up my calendar with Jesus things. I even did the ultimate Jesus thing, which is go be a missionary, right? I mean, that's like varsity, Navy SEAL level for, for me. Like, man, that's, you went to be a missionary, right? I went to be a missionary in a Muslim country. And here's what I found. That same sinful heart that had led me into sins before I became a Christian was the same sinful heart I carried over with me on the mission field. And suddenly walking on the mission field didn't make all those things disappear. I just found a Christian way to indulge all those lusts of the flesh. I was still the same greedy, apathetic, proud, lazy, non-self-controlled person that I had been before I became a missionary. And what he's saying is you've got to drive the gospel deep into your life so that Every different part of you, you see through the lens of the gospel. Every part of you. So that your relationships, your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your fears, your anxiety, all of it, the gospel has gone deep and changed those parts of you. You have to strive to understand what the will of the Lord is in every situation. It's not just going to come naturally. You hear that? Remember that parable I told you at the beginning that Jesus used about the soil falling on the seed? And, I mean, the, the seed falling on the soil? and how some of the stuff springs up quickly. A guy named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a great way of, of, of applying this. He said, the only seeds that made it in Jesus' parable were the seeds that went down deeper than where the roots of the world could touch them. Which means if you want to survive spiritually, you've got to drive the gospel down deep into your heart so that every single part of you has been transformed by the gospel so that your dating relationships, 
so that what you are, uh, the, the way that you handle anger, the way that you dream, the way that you handle everything has been transformed by the gospel. That is the only seeds that survive, and that is an active pursuit. The other analogy I use here quite often when I'm talking about this, I actually thought I used it too much, but then last night at the Saturday service, everybody acted like they'd never heard it before. So I'm going to assume it's kind of depressing and encouraging for me because depressing means that you guys don't remember like 85% of the stuff that I tell you. The, the encouraging thing is I can keep using the same stories over and over again because y'all not going to remember that I told them. All right. <laughs> the image that I always get is of a movie I saw back in the early 90s um, called The Rock with Sean Connery and the most underrated actor of our generation, Nicolas Cage, okay? And yes, indeed, I'm the preacher, don't argue with me, okay? So, so there, in this movie, the general gist of the movie is that you've got um, the bad guys want to destroy San Francisco with these balls of green nuclear gas, right? And if you get in the presence of the green nuclear gas, you, you remember this, you kind of nod your head, if, you, you're, you know, if you're in the presence of the green nuclear gas, it eats your face off, Right? And the only hope that you have of surviving in the presence of the green nuclear gas is to take a needle that's like that long and to stick the antidote in your heart, and that's the only way to survive. So at the climax of the movie, Nicolas Cage is fighting a bad guy, and he takes one of these balls of green nuclear gas, and he shoves it in his mouth, and he punches him in the face. And this ball of green nuclear gas breaks open and eats the guy's face off. And then Nicolas Cage, always one of the smartest guys ever, figures out, I'm in the presence of the green nuclear gas. I'm going to have my face eaten off. So he turns and he starts to run, right? And the green nuclear gas follows him, you know, in the room. And he goes up to the hall and he turns and runs down the hall and the green nuclear gas turns and follows him down the hall. And he goes into this room where there's no doors, no windows, and he can't get out. Here comes the green nuclear gas. And so he reaches in his backpack and he pulls out this needle. He unsheaths the needle. He holds it out in front of his chest. And for just a minute, he hesitates. And you're watching this room and you're like, don't do it. Don't do it. It's better to get eaten by the green nuclear gas than it would be to put that thing into your heart. But then at the last second, right before the green nuclear gas gets there, he puts it in his heart and he shoves the antidote in and he's fine. That's pretty much the end of the movie, right? And if you're like, bro, you totally spoiled that for me. It's 17 years old. Get over it, okay? I've always thought that that was a really good image, though, of how we survive in a toxic world like the one we live in. The only way is to get the gospel so deeply into your heart that every molecule of your body responds to the lens of the gospel. Every single relationship, every single emotion, every single temptation, all of it has to be saturated in the gospel, otherwise it will die. So the first thing he says about engaging in warfare is look carefully, strive to understand in how you walk. Number two, be intentional with your time, he says. Be intentional with your time, that's verse 16. Make the most of it, because we live in an evil age. Can I tell you guys a little secret? You want to know a secret? Lean up close so I can tell you. All right. I don't always feel like seeking God. I really don't. You know, I, I'm not the kind of guy, and this, maybe this disappoints you, but I don't get up in the morning like playing a harp, <laughs> singing Chris Tomlin tunes in my head thinking, man, I can't wait to spend four hours with God. I get up, and I'm telling you, when I get up, the first thing on my mind are a list of things I got to do when I get to the office. And it's just about every morning I'm hearing this little voice say, you know, you ain't got time to spend time with God today. God will understand. You got to get there and return some of those emails. You got like a list of meetings that you got to get to. There are so many things that you need to do. You don't have time to do that this morning. 
Or you need to work out because if you get out of shape and, you know, it's just, you, that's not going to be good. And so you don't want to die. So you better go ahead and work out and not spend time with God this morning. Or here's one. Here's one. You know what? The best thing you could do is you could get another 30 minutes of sleep because then you're going to be better for your church and your family if you're refreshed. So don't spend time with God. Spend that extra 30 minutes sleeping. Anybody else have this monologue going on inside of them? And then when I get home at night, I'm like, oh, I'll spend time with God then. I get home, I'm like, my online's shot now. It's not going to do any good to spend time with God. So I might as well, you know, watch TV because that's pretty much all my mind is good for. And then I'm going to go to bed. I'll do, I'll do this tomorrow, and then I get up in the morning, and the same monologue is going on, and here's the, the whole thing. If I don't intend, if I don't set times, if I don't make the use of the time, the natural direction of my heart is not toward godliness, it is toward tedium. That's what he's saying there. Make the best use of your time. You've got to choose to do it. You've got to be intentional with it. Yeah, I read something years ago in a book called um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People that has really been helpful, and I think it, it, it fits in exactly with what he's saying here. Stephen Covey talks about the principle of the big rocks. So, you know this? He says, he says, okay, you got a container here, and you got to put sand and these rocks in this container, these larger rocks. So how do you do it? He says, if you put the sand in first and then the big rocks on top, you'll never be able to fit it all in. But if you put the big rocks in first and then pour all the sand around it, you'll be amazed at how much more you can get in that container. And the point is, you have to decide what the big rocks are in your life Otherwise, the tedium of the day-to-day activities will so fill up your schedule that you'll never have time for the things that are most important to you. It's called the tyranny of the urgent. And you have to establish what those things are. What that means is, if listen, if you are going to grow with God, it's not going to happen naturally. You've got to intend to do it. You've got to choose to do it. If you're going to grow with your family, you've got to choose to do that. You don't just have extra time laying around to figure out how to do that. It's like, it's like your budget. You're going to tithe. You don't wait to how much money you have at the end of the month. You do it at the beginning. You see what I'm getting at? If, if you're going to get to know unbelievers, if you're going to share Christ with people, you've got to intend to do that. You've got to choose to do that. Otherwise, just the tedium of the world takes you the opposite direction because it doesn't value God. And, and you hear what I'm saying, right? I'm not saying that you know, you're not going to do this because you're out worshiping Satan. I'm saying you don't do it just because you lose time. College student, listen, if you're going to grow with God this summer, it's not just going to happen. It's going to be because you go home and set a plan. It's going to be home and you set priorities. It's going to be because you intentionally prioritize those things that will help you grow. Stay-at-home mom. If you're going to grow with God, it's not just going to happen. Because one of your kids is always going to need your attention. It's going to be because you established that that is a big rock and you were going to devote time to it. Y'all, Jesus told the disciples to pray that they would not enter into temptation. Remember this? Garden of Gethsemane. They slept because they were tired. And as a result, temptation overcame them when it was presented to them. It's the same still for us today. If you don't take time for God to search your heart, if you don't devote attention to prayer, if you don't make that a big rock in your life to have God fill you with strength, you are dead. That's what happened with the disciples. That's what's happening with you. You've got to be intentional about those things. Is this making sense? Number three, so far, how to engage in warfare. Point one was to look carefully in how we walk. Point two is to be intentional with our time. Point three, verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Number three, choose the Spirit, not the spirits, to deal with life. I know it's a little cheesy, but maybe you'll remember it, all right? 
Choose the spirit, not the spirits, to deal with life. Check this, check this out. Life is hard. Anybody disagree with that? Lots of pressures. If you don't believe that, then just have kids. You'll change your mind. Lots of pressures, lots of disappointment, and most everybody learns throughout their life that life is difficult. Paul identifies the two ways people most often deal with life's pressures and anxieties. By the way, when I say alcohol here, I'm not saying, because some of you are like, well, I don't have a problem with alcohol, so this doesn't apply to me. This is really anything that is a means by which you cope with life's pressure. So it may not be alcohol for you, it may be busyness or something else, but just let me use alcohol since that's what he used. The first way that people deal with life's pressures is alcohol. The second is the Spirit of God. Now there's a lot of similarities to what the Spirit does in your life and what alcohol does in your life. Do you believe that? Check this out. People drink because they're worried. The Spirit of God gives you the peace that passes all understanding. Some people drink to get courage. Well, Acts says that when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were filled with boldness. Some people drink because they're having problems, and alcohol for them becomes an escape. Romans 5 says the Spirit of God sheds abroad God's love in our hearts and assures us that we are the children of God, and that is our refuge. Some people drink because it helps them open up and be vulnerable about their feelings to others. Well, the Spirit gives you the security by testifying to your spirit that you are a beloved child of God, and that gives you the security to let others see your weakness. Alcohol and the Spirit both produce some of the same things in you, but they do it, get this, in entirely different ways. Alcohol is a depressant that dulls your senses to reality. Alcohol makes you less aware of your surroundings. The Holy Spirit, by contrast, is a stimulus that makes you more aware of reality. Both alcohol and the Spirit give you a way to cope with life's difficulties, but they do it in entirely different ways. One dulls your senses to realities, one awakens your senses to greater realities. Does that that make sense? Say you were a soldier and you were fighting in a battle. You were in a foxhole. It was just you and like three other guys. You're in this foxhole and suddenly you get word that two miles away there are 200 enemy troops You are all by yourself, and they are coming, and they are going to kill you. How do you get the courage and the confidence to be able to fight them in battle with just four of you and the 200 of them out there? How do you do that? Well, a lot of people would use alcohol. Or you would dull your senses so that you would be brave and you could meet them with confidence. But what if you did a little reconnaissance and you found out that a half mile away, there were 2,000 friendly troops, and they were headed to you? And they are going to surround you and protect you from the 200 enemy troops. That would give you a joy and a confidence in the midst of that foxhole. You see what I'm getting at? In one of them, you got confidence and bravery by dulling your senses to reality. In the other one, you had a greater sense of reality that gave you confidence to face the same thing. The Holy Spirit gives you a way to cope by opening your eyes to the reality of God. Alcohol gets rid of worry by making you forget. The Spirit gets rid of worry by helping you remember. Alcohol gives you courage by making you unaware of the dangers around you. The Spirit gives you courage by making you aware of how much larger God is than the fears that are around you. Alcohol adds excitement to your life by giving you a cheap thrill. The Spirit adds excitement to your life by bringing you into the presence of God where there is fullness of joy and at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You don't need a fifth of Jack. You need a filling of Jehovah, right? You don't need absolute vodka. You need absolute truth, right? 
You don't need, I'm just kidding. I'm not, I don't... That's terrible, I know. All right. Y'all, commentators point out that Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 and Colossians 3, 16 and 17, one of Paul's other letters, are parallel passages. And in order to understand the one, you got to understand the other. Watch this, okay? You guys that are other campuses, don't lose me. I'm about, you can't see my face, but I can see you. All right. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. Be filled with the Spirit, watch this, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 5. Watch this, Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, now watch, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Did you hear that? Same passage, same one, except for one phrase. And that one phrase is in Ephesians 5, he says, be filled with the Spirit. And in Colossians 3, he switches it to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know what that shows you? It shows you that in the mind of Paul, being filled with the Spirit and having the word of Christ dwell in you richly is the exact same thing. That's very important. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 3, watch this, Paul had prayed in Ephesians 3 that we would be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That you may be, see this phrase? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How are you filled with all the fullness of God? You comprehend what is the breadth and length and the height and the depth of God's love for you. Do you get that? You're like, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It's to have a knowledge, a present knowledge of how much God loves you. You're like, what do those words mean? Length and breadth and height and depth. Length of God's love. In Ephesians, Paul has explained that God has loved you from eternity past and will love you for eternity past. That there was never a time that God did not know about you and love you and that there is nothing you can do in the future to change God's love for you. That's the length of God's love. The breadth, or let's go height of God's love. The height of God's love. Psalm 103 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his love is for those of us who are his children. What that means is when you get out your telescope or you look at some of these images from the Hubble telescope and you see the farthest star, that is the dimension God used to measure the intensity of his passion for you. How much he cares about your pain, how much he cares about you. The breadth of God's love, what's that a reference to? Well, again, Ephesians 1 has explained that there's not a molecule in the universe that is outside of God's control. And that God has marshaled every molecule in our universe for your good and his glory. Which means that you never have to worry about something happening to you that is going to derail his plan for your life. The breadth of God's love is as wide as the universe. God controls everything for the purposes that he has on earth. The depth of God's love, what's that? That's a reference, Ephesians 2, to the fact that God reached down into the grave to the sin that we had rebelled against him with and came to earth to live a life that we should have lived and then to die a cursed death that we should have died so that he could save us. It refers to how deep God had to reach to save you. And Paul says when you get your mind around the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of God's love, when that word of Christ dwells in you richly, then the Spirit fills you. You can cope with life's difficulties. You see that? That's a much better way to deal with life's problems. And getting jacked up on grandpa's old cough medicine, isn't it? Yeah, right? We need to be filled with the Spirit so we won't turn to things 
like alcohol or pornography or overworking or mindless, tedious entertainment or extramarital affairs to deal with life's pressure. And that's why Paul gives you the commands of the next verses. So again, just to make sure you're following along here. How do we engage in warfare? Number one, look carefully on how we walk. Number two, be intentional with your time. Number three, choose the spirit, not the spirits, to deal with life's problems. Number four, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Here's number four, sing a new song constantly in your heart. I love this, verse 19, look at this. He's telling them to remind themselves constantly of God's great love on their behalf. Here's what's interesting. Watch, watch, watch. It's interesting that he tells them to do it through music. Watch. He didn't tell them to quote scripture to themselves. He didn't tell them to listen to sermons on your iPod. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. You can download my sermons at www.jdgray.com. Okay, all right. But he chose music. Why? Why would he choose music there? Is that because he's a worship pastor and he's got a, wants to really exalt music? No. It's because songs communicate emotion and worship. Remember a few weeks ago I explained to you that gospel change is the spirit of God using the story of God to make the beauty of God come alive in your hearts? Remember that? It's only when the beauty of God captivates your heart that you'll actually change. And when a heart is captivated by beauty, that is better represented by a guy with a song in his heart than it is by a guy who can quote verses or explain doctrines. To be saved means that you are in love with Jesus, not knowledgeable about doctrine only. That's why I have told you I want you to study Jesus, but not like the seminarian studies doctrine, but like someone would study a sunset that left them speechless. Or the way that a man who was in love with his wife studied his wife until the music of her beauty burst alive in his heart. And his, and his rapture with her beauty drove out all the other enticements for other women. That's what it means. That's why Paul's saying that. Because to be saved means you get swept up into a song that becomes so beautiful to you and so forming in your heart that it makes you dull to the music of the world around you because you've got a greater beauty. The other day I was driving down I-40 and I saw the little Summit Church sticker on the back of a car and I didn't recognize a car, so I was like, I'm gonna go see who this is because I always want to freak people out. I like drive up by them and I kind of look at them and <laughs> they recognize me as a pastor. I just kind of shake my head and keep driving. Um, no, I, um, so I pull up next to this guy and uh, this is guy, I, I don't even know who he is. He might be here. Uh, I didn't recognize him. I mean, just clearly in his car, worshiping, at the top of his lungs, just singing and moving. And I was like, I was trying to get his attention because I was like, I know this will humiliate him if he sees me seeing him do this. And uh, he would not pay any attention to me or anybody. He was oblivious to what was going on. He was just so caught up in the midst of this moment. And I thought, not that that's, you know, you have to do that everywhere you drive around, but I thought that's actually a really good picture of what it means to walk with Jesus is that your heart is so captivated by beauty that you're not really aware of a lot of other things because you're swept up into this beauty of this God that you have suddenly become a part of. That's much better than what happened to me, by the way, a little while ago. I was, uh, uh, listen, I'll tell you the truth about this. About every six months, I listen to one of my own sermons. Only every six months. Because I do it because I like to hear all the little annoying speaker things that I do. And you can hear that when you listen to yourself. So 
I was doing that only every six months. And uh, I was in my car, and I had the windows down, so I had to have it turned up really loud. I mean, clearly, right? You know, so I had to have it turned up loud. Well, I come up to a stoplight. Before I have time to turn it down, somebody from the Summit Church pulls up next to me with their windows down, and there's me sitting in my car listening to myself at full blast. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 I'm you know, scratching my nose, not picking, I promise. Look, it's, look, hey, you know, and I don't have... Whoever you are, I'm not nearly as narcissistic as that made me seem, okay? <laughs> Only every six months. But the point is, look, to be saved means you get swept up into the beauty of worship. So we are commanded to sing a new song constantly in our hearts. And we're also commanded, number five, to sing that new song to others. See that verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? You're like, what does that mean? Does it mean we'll walk around to each other and we're like, hello? How are you? You know, I mean, it's like, it's like we're in a musical. Um, I went to see Wicked the other night at the Durham Performing Arts Center, and my wife and I, we, there was a, like, Durham had a baseball game, and it was a mess downtown, so we were late. Wasn't our fault, we were late. And um, so if you don't get there on time for this particular show, they, they actually hold you out until about 10 minutes out. And so my wife and I are standing out with a small group of people who we're all got there late. We're standing out there, you know, ashamed. And, uh, and I'm, you know, like, no big deal. It's like, whatever, you know. And uh, this girl beside me, um, who didn't come with us, she was, I mean, she was distraught. I mean, she, she was crying. She's like, you gotta let me in. She's like, I don't know what's going on. What if I miss something? What if I miss part of the, and I was like, look, plot movements in these things take about 45 minutes. Like one guy makes one statement, and then they all dance around about it for about 45 minutes, right? <laughs> You're not missing anything, I promise. He's not saying your life is a musical where you sing to each other all the time. What he's, saying, watch it. what he's saying is our love for Jesus is constantly put on a display in a way that entices other people to the beauty of Jesus. That's what he means. So we're singing this song to others. That happens in a big way right here in worship. We see this all the time. A lot of times, I cannot tell you how many times somebody who is not a Christian comes and they're not persuaded to open their heart to Jesus through a sermon that I give or through the logic of an argument, but they're persuaded when they are captivated by the beauty of Jesus they see put on display in worship. For example, Anne Lamott, which if you're into literature, you know who that is, a popular novelist. For a while, she was an adamant non-Christian. Recently became a Christian, and she said she was first attracted to God through the music of a local church. She said before she could even stand to sit through a sermon, the music revealed to her God's beauty and redemptive power. She said, and I quote, when I was in the worship service, something inside me that was stiff and rotting would feel soft and tender. Somehow the singing wore down all the boundaries that kept me feeling so isolated, sitting there and then eventually standing with them to sing, sometimes so spiritually aching and sick that I felt like I might tip over. As I sang God's praises, I began to feel bigger than myself, like I was being taken care of. It was almost like I was being tricked into coming back into life. God was tricking me through music. Y'all, we see this all the time at our church. In fact, some of you, it's exactly why you're here right now. There's something that is curious to you. And there's a beauty that you're hearing. It's echoing in your heart. And it's not becoming because of the force of my logic. It's coming because your heart is hearing a tune. And I'm speaking, yes, metaphorically. It's hearing a tune of beauty. And that's happening through worship. 
That leads me to the last thing that I'm going to tell you here, number six. That means you've got to be around the people of God. That's the last command for being involved in this warfare. Be around the people of God. Verse 19. You've got to be close enough to the people of God that you can hear the song in their hearts. Ephesians chapter 5 is one of the 58 one another passages in the, Bible, in the New Testament. Love one another, pray for one another, admonish one another. Here it is address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And guys, you can only do this if you are around. So the implication for many of you is clear. You need to get off the sidelines and get involved in the church. Some of you have been here for entirely too long as a spectator. And you've got to get connected. Some of you need to join the church. This is not a membership drive, okay? I'm just talking about, you know, we need to have you on the roll. I mean, you've got to become a part of this place and not just somebody who sits in the audience. You've got to join up with a small group. I told you, you can only have access to the power of God when you are intimately connected to the people of God. Because the people of God are the means by which God's power flows. See, you need to get connected here. Frequenting the community of God is the only answer to gradual backsliding. So there you have it. Life is war. These six ways, did you get them? Look carefully in how you walk, be intentional with your time, choose the Spirit, sing a new song, sing to each other, and be around the people of God. That's how you engage in warfare. You get this? If you coast, you die. If you coast, you die. Now, some of you are like, yeah, I don't get this though. I mean, I can do these six things, but I don't have a song coming out of my heart. If anything, the music in my heart is more like a groan. It's more like confusion. It's more like pain. And I don't want to become a hypocrite. I don't want to fake. I don't want to pretend like everything inside of my heart is beautiful when it's not. I understand. Let me tell you where that starts. That song begins to change. Stay with me real quick. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus, one of the main things that he did when he saved us is he put a new song in our heart. And when the writer of Hebrews says that, he quotes, follow, he quotes Psalm 22, because the last verse of Psalm 22 says that Jesus will put a new song in the congregation. Psalm 22 is the song that Jesus quoted on the cross. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is a song of abandonment. Jesus quoted that psalm because he was living that song. He was being abandoned by God because of my sin. He was suffering the penalty that I had brought on myself, which brought into my life all that confusion and all that pain. Watch. Because Jesus sang the song of abandonment for me, I can sing the song of reconciliation and joy in him. You want to know where that song changes in your heart? It's when you receive the fact that Jesus sang the song of salvation for you. When you realize that he sang the song of abandonment for you, your heart will be filled with the song of joy. You want to know where to start? You start with the gospel. It's where you always start. You having trouble saying no to sin in your life? You want to know where to start? You grasp that Jesus, the reason he sang that song of abandonment was because of your sin. And as the weight of that salvation comes into your heart, it will drive away your enticements for sin because you'll be captured by the beauty of the love that God showed you in the cross. Start with the gospel. Always start with the gospel. And let it change that song. Why don't you bow your heads, all of our campuses, and let me pray for you.
Father, for that one who came today with somebody else, I pray, Lord, that you would let this provoke them so much until they have had a conversation with the person who invited them and ask them to show them how they can receive your love and your salvation. Father, for the believer who struggles with sin, I pray that you would help this song come alive in their heart. Father, I pray that we would be people of worship, not out of duty, but because we delight in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.